Hello and welcome to the Stay Healthy Experience. This is Robert Ferguson, one of two hosts. And today we have a show you do not want to avoid. Not like you avoid the show. I'm just saying you want to be there because I think all of our shows are good. But I'm extremely excited about today's show because I'm introducing you to a friend. I'm introducing you to someone who you're going to change your language after this this uh, conversation. Trust me, it's going to be interesting. And my partner in crime is Barbara Kay. How you doing, Barbara? Hey, I'm doing great, Robert. How are you? I am good. So I mentioned to you, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago mm-hmm. about a friend of mine who who uh, set me straight on a couple words that I was using. And, you know, I'm the kind of person that if you open my eyes to something and it's the truth, I'm going to embrace it. You know what I mean? Yes. And so I sent over our guest bio. Uh, You remember the story I told you. Mm -hmm. And so we definitely, I definitely want to like have that conversation with her, but um, I'm really excited about it, Barbara. I know I am too. Yeah. I got a sneak peek at her all the great things that she's done. And oh my goodness, lots of questions for her. Well, you know, when you look at someone's bio like that, you automatically assume they must be 65 plus. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. I was so impressed. She's got this just amazing list of things that she's done. I'm like, wow. And she's doing like, I love talking to people who are doing it and not just talking about it. So I'm not going to put this off any further. Let's welcome our guest for today. The one and only Miss Natalie. Bert, hey! Hello, good afternoon. Happy, well, good morning to you. Good afternoon for me. Nice That's to be right. with you. Yeah. So, so do us a favor, Natalie, because your bio is extensive. Right. And I have a whole bunch that I want to talk about. But sure. if someone's meeting you for the first time, aside mm-hmm. from, you know, being the president and CEO of Common Health Action mm-hmm. and all the work that you do as far as inequity and disparities and, and mm-hmm. opening people's eyes and I guess influencers' eyes to see how they could use their influence to make a, a very powerful impact on their communities and help people, et cetera. Who are you? Tell, tell the people, <laughs> give us an introduction. Well, uh, I am a child of Jamaican immigrants. I was born in Queens, New York at the beginning of rap. That gives you an idea about how old I might be. Uh, and grew up in a multi-generational household. Um, came to Maryland around the time of middle school. And when I was in college, my grandparents started to experience some health challenges. And because of that, I became very curious about how health happens. That I started to recognize that it was more than whether or not they made the right choices or they had health insurance, but it was about things like access to care. Um, It was about things like you know, them having culturally competent care and a host of other things. And I started to understand how policy that's set at the federal, state, and local levels create conditions for people to experience health, well-being, and quality of life or illness, disease, and early death. And so in that process, what I've tried to do is really to build a career where I've sat around every seat at the table of health to understand the different points of view and how all of those things come together to produce this thing that we talk about as health. That's pretty much me. Well, you know, I I initially met you at one of those tables. Mm-hmm. I believe it was a NAACP event. Wow. Um, yeah, that was a while ago. <laughs> wow. Whoa, yeah. We were, I think we were in Florida, or it could have been somewhere else because I also ran into you again at another table. 
Yeah. And I remember like in that room that day, every time you would talk and I didn't know you, it was profound to me uh, because we were, you know, I remember sitting next to the secretary for the USDA. Mm -hmm. There were some heavy hitters in the room and you had a lot of people that were just looking out for their communities and wanted to kind of share their voice about their situations. And I, I remember hearing this one, you know, black lady, I remember her saying, Hey, my son hasn't gone number two in six weeks. And that's a reality for people. Mm -hmm. And I remember you making comments. I was like, man, who is this? Right. <laughs> and then you said something. I go, wow. And I just loved it. And then I remember, you know, after getting to know you and I want to open up with this because it can help so many people. Mm -hmm. I was running around like most people regurgitating what I had heard and assumed I understood when I was talking about the work I was doing in under-resourced communities. Mm -hmm. And then you opened my eyes and helped me understand that that was not the ideal term for what I was probably feeling or thinking inside. Could you shed light on that? I think what you were saying at the time actually was um, that, and, th and this is, you know, it's, typical, we talk about underserved communities over and over again. We're talking about services as those- Oh yeah, did I say underserved? Yeah, you said it the right way just now. Okay, though. see, I'm, I'm all messed up. Right, that's right, that's right, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, and so we tend to talk about underserved communities. There's a technical definition for underserved, and it has to do with a lack of uh, medical services being available in certain communities or other types of services, right? And then how that then can factor into health. But in fact, it's about more than services. And when we con consistently talk about communities being underserved, we're not paying attention to the other resources that communities need to have opportunities to be healthy, right? So the fact that maybe people don't have green space places where children can go outside and be physically active and play. That's not about services per se, that's about green space and places to play, right? And so we need to talk about communities being under-resourced and under the umbrella of being under-resourced, they can be underserved. And so you just said it the right way. <laughs> I, you know, it's so crazy because when you open my eyes to that, it made total sense. And since that time, I've used under resourced. So that's maybe five years ago. I think I did a post on LinkedIn and you like made a comment and I was like, she is so spot on. Yeah. And from it's, that time, it's just in me to say under resourced. You said it the right way. So that just made my day. And, and one of the things that's important is too, when we go into community spaces and we use language, they model that language. They replicate that language. And so for me, what I don't want to do is to get a community to be overly focused on services when they should be thinking about lots of different things, right? Inclusive services, but also many other things. Oh, wow. So that, that's the story, Natalie, that Robert shared with me about the, how you corrected him on the usage of whether it's under-resourced versus underserved, and the big difference there is there. It, it was really an eye-opening conversation. We just don't yeah. realize the, the those little nuances and words and what they really mean. Absolutely. And I think language is so important because if you can't name a problem, you can't solve a problem, 
right? So the other example that I often give because I feel like it's the thorn in my side and the bane of my existence is around people talking about health disparities when they need to be talking about health inequities. Inequity. Woo, come on, here we go. Yes. So, and so, right, the conversation, most of the legislation has been written as health disparity. Um, when in fact, health inequity is, is the correct term for the types of things that we're usually talking about. So here's the example. If you were to look at female and male rates of breast cancer, you will find that there is a disparity and that females are predisposed to having breast cancer. It's biological in nature because females have the, the estrogen levels, the breast tissue, et cetera, so it makes absolute sense, right? That is a health disparity. But if you were to look at breast cancer rates, amongst females of different races in terms of survival, right? You would find that African-American women are more likely to die. That is a health inequity, which is a specific type of disparity. It's a disparity that's preventable, avoidable, and unjust. And the reason that it's framed that way as an inequity is because policy really drives a lot of the things that factor into whether women get to survive breast cancer or not. So there's some genetic predisposition, and I'm not gonna say that there's not. In some instances, there absolutely is. But even when you look at it across the science, it's very clear that those other things, those conditions like access to healthcare, access to culturally competent care, access to the right medications, right? Support systems, transportation to be able to get to appointments, even. Those are all factors into whether or not people get the level of care that they need to actually survive. So that's the difference between whether we're talking about a health disparity, which is just sort of, it's a thing. It's a difference in health status and outcome, right? But health inequity is a difference in health status or outcome that is preventable, avoidable, and unjust. Hopefully you know, Natalie, I, I kid you not, I'm in the room mm -hmm. with very wealthy people that run huge multi-billion dollar companies from the Aetna's, Anthem's, United Healthcare, even mm -hmm. the gateways, and no one in that room, and I'm in it a lot, understand what you just mm -hmm. said. No. They don't, and I'm in there. And I remember learning from you the difference between inequities uh, and, all right, help me out here. Disparities. <laughs> Disparities. disparities. I'm not talking about it anymore because you're yeah. focused on so it. So inequities and disparities. And I remember yeah. you had educated me on that. Mm -hmm. And I remember like being in the room mm -hmm. with all these people and I broke it down so eloquently. It was like you were inside of me. Oh. And they all looked at me like, who is this brother? Right. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. I'm yeah. So that. I am so like, you know how like you meet people in your life that either lift you or say something that you'll never forget. And that's been the impact that I've had with you. It's like when I was in DC and I came and visited your office, I always leave better. Okay. And I feel like it's kind of like, I mean, I wish you had five pounds to lose because I would love to help you. <laughs> oh, now you're really being kind. <laughs> we can have a conversation offline. <laughs> see, you know what I mean? Like Barbara is just one of those people that when you're with them, you always walk and you go, wow, I'm going to think about think that a little differently. Or I never knew that. And yes. I just, I commend you on that. Yeah, absolutely. And even, even just in this short conversation right now, Natalie, I'm already, I feel like my brain is just, is, is uh, enlightened already just talking to you. And I think you, you mentioned something in your previous statement. You talked about how, you know, 
the difference between the disparity and inequity. And do you think that, is it that people just, or there are some people that just don't believe that's true or they just don't understand? I think more people don't understand. I think there are a few people who are resistant to it. Um, and I think that this whole idea that your health is a production, right? So there's this portion of it that the science tells us is about 10 to 20% genetic, right? We have this other segment that's about personal behavioral choices. Do you eat right, diet, exercise, engage in risky behavior, wear a seatbelt, wear a condom, wear a mask, wash your hands, go to a preventive appointment, right? All of those things are about personal behavioral choice to some degree, right? But then there's this other portion that's this 40 to 50% that's about the systems and the institutions that create the construct within which we live our lives. We know that there are communities in this country that are much healthier, right? So if you're familiar even with the blue zone communities, there are lots of reasons why blue zone communities are places where there are people who live, more people who live in those areas who live to be more than 100 than in other places. And it's everything from do they have, you know, a grocery store nearby with affordable, healthy food? Do they have areas for exercise? Is it safe in terms of violence? Are they exposed to pollution? Do they have good quality water? Like there are all of these things that factor into it. There are some people who want to say if you are sick or ill or have a chronic condition, it's your fault. Right. Um, I tend to look at it as your health is your responsibility and that responsibility occurs within a larger context. So we've got to deal with making sure that people understand which parts they can control and where they are responsible and then really set up conditions where the healthy choice is the easy choice mm -hmm. and that there are fewer threats to our health on a daily basis. You know, you just defined the true original definition of wellness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So wellness was coined by a guy named Dr. Halbert Dunn, for those who are listening in and watching. And, you know, I've always believed that if you want to really understand something, you go to the creator. It's kind of like mm -hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer would go get the hammer and hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. Well, he's not the creator for that hammer because that hammer was not designed to kill people. You know what I mean? <laughs> so right. when 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 Halbert Dunn came up with that, it was all about meeting people where they are, going to them where they are at that moment mm -hmm. and seeing how they can maximize the potential that they have within their reach. Absolutely. And that definitely is something that I see with your work. And so then when I think about the climate that, that we're in and hopefully coming out of with COVID, it's a huge disparity, inequity, Do you agree? A huge, and I'm sorry, you broke up for a second. Oh, a huge sorry. Huge inequity in when it comes to COVID, right? I believe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I believe. I, I think you. I heard you say this, or maybe I picked it up from you, and I ran with it. Was mm -hmm. it's an inequity when mm -hmm. they say, "Hey, everybody can go get COVID testing," and you got to go to this drive-in. That means you need to have a car. They you need to have all these other things. And so Absolutely. they're not even thinking about those people. Absolutely. But also, you know, there are so many components to this. So first of all, pre-COVID, we saw that Native American indigenous populations, um, whether you were talking about Latino populations or African-American populations, the prevalence of chronic conditions was 
certainly much higher than in white and Asian populations, right? So we knew that to be true. And in some ways that made those populations more medically vulnerable to COVID to start with. But then when you start to think about and look at the numbers of who frontline workers were and have been throughout COVID, who's working in the grocery store, who's working in the post office, who works in those jobs where they can't work from home? So they were actually in contact with the public every single day, right? You will find a disproportionate number of those folks are people of color, right? So then their risk is even higher because of that. Then you factor in like what you just mentioned, Robert, about access to testing. And we found that access to testing was not fair by any stretch of the imagination. When you look at how tests were distributed and made available throughout the country, right? And now take it a step further, and we're looking at the challenges with the vaccine and access to vaccinations. Mm -hmm. I have big concerns for seniors because many of the states are putting the vaccine registration and appointment, appointment making on technology that a lot of seniors don't have or don't know how to navigate. Some of them actually still live in communities that don't have great broadband access, right? So with that in mind, um, you're finding that seniors are struggling to be able to make appointments when they are some of the most medically vulnerable people, you know? And so there, that when you look at the inequities in vaccine um, uh, uptake, people will point to and say, oh, well, you know, people are not getting it because they don't trust it. Or, you know, African-American folks are not getting it because they don't trust it. When in fact, I'm seeing lists and groups of people who are trying to do anything possible to be able to get access to it. Right. So I think we have to be careful about the narrative and about um, the issue of equity and access to the vaccine along the way. See, that's when I, I wonder, where are all the pastors? Mm. Where, where are all these pastors that ha they, they've been talking a big talk for a long time mm -hmm. and I ain't heard nothing from the churches? Well, OK, so I do know um, in a number of places. So, for instance, Detroit would be a good example that there have been a number of pastors who have been very vocal um, and who have gone so far as to get their vaccines and to put that live on camera using you know, different platforms. So I know that um, pastors have been struggling because of this virtual world about how to reach congregants that they're accustomed to reach in person. Right. Like that was the way that you would normally do it. The health ministry would tell everybody, come out on Thursday night. You know, we're right. going to have blue shots here type of thing. This is a little bit different. So to encourage people, I have been seeing more pastors go online and show like the pastor and the first lady getting their shot so that, you know, when their congregants see that, then they feel a little bit more comfortable about it. Um, and I think we'll see more of that as time goes on, because I think people are starting to trust the vaccine more because they're seeing more people get it, less adverse outcomes compared to the adverse outcomes of when people get COVID, right? So it's like, right. you look at the two things and the two risks associated, you know, people are starting to now recognize that the risk of the vaccine is lower than the risk of getting COVID. Right. Mm -hmm. So Natalie, does that tie into what you mentioned about healthcare being culturally, how'd you put culturally, not connected. Competent. Competent, yeah. is that part of that? Absolutely. So I think um, every every population has a culture, right? Um, it's not necessarily monolithic, but I think that there are some core things that you can find within different cultural identities. And so it's important for healthcare providers 
and for public health to understand where and how you reach certain people, right? So there are still some communities where um, online is not gonna cut it for them. And in the midst of COVID, you've got to figure out how to reach them, right? So how are you doing that? Is that a flyer at the grocery store? Mm-hmm. You know, is that actually having people to canvas their neighborhood and tape a flyer to their door? And so public health is really having to be very creative in saying, how do we reach people where they are? Um, so it's everything from, you know, do you put messages out on TikTok where you have a lot of teenagers who can say to their parents, hey, maybe we need to get Nana and Papa their vaccine. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't, right. you wouldn't necessarily think about it, but yes, right? And that's part of culture too. So we've got to be creative and figure out um, the piece, Robert, that you said about meeting people where they are. Part of culturally competent care is absolutely doing that. It's knowing that there are certain ways to appeal to people, but there are also certain ways that you can box folks out so that they don't want to have anything to do with it. And so we've got to be sure that we're creating space for people to find their way into health. Man, you know, it's so, when you think about it, I, I bet it drives you crazy to watch the news. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> this morning, in fact, every single day. You know, because you're you're in this place, it's kind of like when I watch people, like if I watch Dr. Oz, I can't watch him. Not that I'm not a fan, or like, I think he's extremely talented, but I can't watch shows like that because it drives me crazy because I know that they're not thinking about the people who don't get what they're talking about. Absolutely. And those people, they zone out and next thing you know, they walk away getting not even a third of what the goal was in the story. Mm-hmm. And because they become almost like a zombie and they didn't really get it, then they just go and buy whatever was mentioned, absolutely. not knowing if it's going to be helpful or not. And, and it drives me absolutely crazy. So I, I avoid it. Yep. And I, I think about you and the work that you do, like you, you could benefit so many organizations um, who want to make a difference and reach all these different cultures and communities mm-hmm. just by being in the room. Right. So I hope that's happening. It, it is. It is. To, I, I think to a, a much larger degree than before. So like, you know, Commonwealth Action's work lives at this intersection of public health and these issues around equity. And so what's the past year been about in America? It's that's the conversation that we have been having, sometimes not as effectively as I would hope, um, but other times certainly better. And so it's created a really big opportunity and a lot of demand um, for certainly our work and for me, even as a speaker, to come in and to try to help people to understand how the pieces of the puzzle fit together, maybe a little differently than they thought. And so that's part of why, part of what I have to do is to orchestrate constructive discomfort. I have to make people get uncomfortable without losing them, right? Mm -hmm. I have to challenge the deeply held assumptions um, and beliefs, often which are erroneous, and help them figure out how to reframe that in a way that's meaningful to them and valuable to them, that it's not about tearing something down, but it's about figuring out how to build something up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this idea even, you know, Robert, earlier when we were talking, you had mentioned about the hammer. I talk about how, you know, in, a, in many ways, our identities are like a hammer and we can either use it as a weapon or a tool. So to really help people to figure out how to use the power that they have as a tool for good, 
you know, how to use your superpowers for good type of thing. That's what we're talking about doing it and doing it in a way that supports health, well-being and quality of life. Man, you want to look at Barbara going, I should be taking notes. Really interesting. I remember. So, Natalie, um, you know, uh, I was in the aerospace business for nearly 20 years and I, I left. I left that about five years ago. And, you know, in that kind of a company, you can imagine you know, how the healthcare was provided. You know, we had every year we got to choose our benefit or choose the plan that we wanted to go to. And it was pretty, especially early on, it was very, it was just simple, literally just clicked and everything just happened for us. And right. then years went on and healthcare, the whole system started to change. Mm -hmm. you know, rates were changing quite a bit. Um, I remember this push from our human resources about becoming, you had to be your own health advocate. You had to really look into your plans, really understand mm -hmm what it was that you were getting. And I remember even for us, it was a huge change in how we looked at our healthcare, what we really needed, because it was actually a difficult question to answer as far as, well, what do you really need? What makes sense for you mm -hmm. to choose what kind of plan you have? And I would imagine now, even with, let's say COVID, even more so that people, like you said, have been pushed into this area of complete discomfort when it comes to how and what to do with their health and health care if they even have, you know, services or resources available to them. What would you say to help someone become their own health advocate? What is a starting point for someone who really just doesn't even know where to, where to start? You know, I know that's a big question, but it's, um, I see that quite a bit. I mean, I see it from, like I said, from the corporate world and how I felt even having all those resources and tools available to me, but then now also with COVID and literally feeling like people are starting from the ground up with this. I think it's a great question. Uh, and I don't often say that, but I really do think it's a great question. To me, uh, I think that information is available to us, but we have to be discerning consumers of that information. And so it's important that in order to become good consumers of that information that is about our health, we have to figure out where we can find credible and reputable information. And so there are some mainstay institutions that have been a part of healthcare since its inception that are the best sources of information. Mm -hmm. I, I really encourage people to avoid getting your healthcare uh, guidance via Facebook posts from people who, <laughs> like, you know, via Facebook posts who are not actually clinicians or healthcare providers, right? Um, because a lot of things that I see online are akin to gossip and they're not rooted in any real practice with regard to healthcare. There's another piece to this though, Barbara, that I think is really important. In order to be a good health advocate, for yourself or for someone in your family, you have to value health. Mm. And I think that there's, we, we, I don't know that we get that. And so here's what I think happens in many ways, you know, in public health, we talk about when public health is working, nobody knows what it is. So when there was no pandemic, nobody knew what public health was, right? People didn't know what CDC did or what NIH did. Folks didn't understand it. People didn't understand about clinical trials. When public health is working, 
it doesn't get noticed and it doesn't get talked about. When it gets noticed and talked about is when there's a pandemic, when there's an E. coli outbreak. You know what I mean? Like those are the moments right. that it applies. Right. Well, unfortunately, at an individual level, when people's health is working, they often pay it no mind. It's as though they think it's just gonna remain constant and they don't have to do anything to keep it there. Not recognizing that there are all of these factors and forces that are pushing on their health status all the time. So if you think about stress, right? And this idea of allostatic load, that those stress factors have the ability to turn on genetic expression. So you, maybe you have the gene four, hypertension, the gene for diabetes, the gene for, you can run through a list of chronic conditions and you're good and then all of a sudden you're not good. Well, what happened? What factored into that? Sometimes it's actually stress that serves as a trigger to turn on that chronic disease, right? But people, when they're taking their health for, for granted because they're healthy, so they don't go to the doctor. It's like, oh, I don't need to check up, I'm good, I'm not sick. And I hear people say that all the time, right? And so I think we have to figure out what our responsibility is along the way to maintain good health when we have it and not become consumers of healthcare or advocates for our health only when we start to experience illness in some way, shape or form or injury or chronic disease. You get what I mean? Oh, amen to that. I mean, you're 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 so on point. It's like I I you know what Barbara I was thinking about a quote from JFK when he said the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. Yes. But I, I like to stay there because <laughs> how do you change that? And is there a movement right now that's going into certain communities mm -hmm. where they don't value their health? Right. Right? Because if you just blatantly say that, then people are quick to get offended. Mm-hmm. Right, because they go, nah, of course I value my, I go, right. well, when nothing's going on, I don't see you valuing your health. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So we, don't, we don't demonstrate what we value by how we feel. We demonstrate what we value by what we do. And so I think that's very, a very oh. different, right? Come on now. Right, so <laughs> in, in that, in that, here's what I think. Um, there are many communities in this country where the quest and, and the, the drive for basic human needs, food on the table, roof over the head, a car with gas in it, you know, those types of things are so overwhelming that for people to pull up enough to even focus on health doesn't happen because there's no bandwidth to do that, right? So to the degree that we can create conditions where people can focus on those things, then that gives them the opportunity to engage in those things that are about maintaining what they perceive to be good health, right? So I definitely think that that's a part of it. The other part though is, and I'm just gonna be straight with you all, I think that the fitness industry and what I would think of as sort of the health industry has not really figured out how to message and engage with those populations that are at greatest risk of disease and illness. I just don't. And so I think it's gotten better but I think that there's more that could be done to um, make health uh, appealing, right? And to, dis to really demonstrate what feels like attainable return on investment. Mm. The examples that we lift up of what health looks like and what fitness looks like can feel so far from attainable for people. And the reality is optimal health for me is not the same as optimal health for Robert or optimal health for Barbara. Our 
what we can achieve. Each of us is different. That's absolutely okay. But I should want my optimal health to be a reality, right? So I think that we've got to figure out how to make the case for optimal health for each person. Well, you know, one of the big challenges to do that mm -hmm. is to even the playing field with the right game book. And what I mean by that, for instance, the body mass index, as you may know, mm -hmm. is outdated, goes back to the 1830s, yep. but yet it's the determining factor on how these physicians categorize someone if they're overweight, underweight, obese, et cetera. And based on that BMI, Mm -hmm. that is 100% like cemented in, and in, in, it's like a the doctrine um, all over the world. Serena Williams is considered obese. Yep. So how do we like lobby and change that? I Here's what I would say. I actually think if we were able to craft alternative measures of health and fitness that were credible, right? And then able to to package those in a way that people could understand and relate to them. That's the opportunity to get people to plug into their health differently. So when I see people who I can look at them and see, you know what, if I lost that last 12 pounds, if I was able to increase my muscle mass by X percent, I could actually be that. That then becomes attainable to me. But a lot of what we continue to see as the images of what is healthy or fit um, is not based on reality and isn't always healthy or fit, right? So what our eyes right. show us is not necessarily the truth. So what you're saying about Serena is one way of looking at it. And then in the other, the people who folks assume they're so healthy and so on and so forth, in fact, they're not really sometimes as well. So we've got to figure out how do we redefine health in a way that people can see themselves in it. Um, and if you all want to start a commission on this, I am happy to serve. Call me. <laughs> I'm here for you. I am here for you. Now, that is so powerfully said. Um, I especially can appreciate the fact of, of you sharing the fact that for a lot of people, you know, that, that better health for them or their optimal health seems so far that it just, that there's nothing that they can do. So that it's almost a help, I would imagine, like a helpless feeling or it's like it's just not in the in yeah. for me. Yes. So how, like you said, how then do we better package or mm -hmm. formulate a way to show that there are steps along the way that are absolutely attainable and what is meaningful to these, to these, you know, to people like that, you know, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a, uh, it's an eye opener because like, we think like, I'm always about, we want to educate, we want to educate, but if that education or whatever it is, whatever we're painting is just such mm -hmm. a kind of a far off distant thing, then right. We just lose them altogether, and mm -hmm. it's such a oh, it's just a, such a, a I don't know bummer. It's it's a it's a, it's a sad thing, right? It's a because sad thing. Yeah. so we just we just did a clinical trial, and Barbara got to go back to mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Um, we did this trial for people who live in under-resourced communities. Well said, well said. <laughs> Trust me, that's I always say it that way now. Yeah. And, one of the biggest challenges that we had working with Medicaid and um, Medicare, uh, the people that we had in this trial, was them being able to get to the location for the opportunity. Yep. And yes. at first, it sounds great because you work out the transportation. Mm -hmm. And then there was a breakdown in the transportation. Mm -hmm. Right. So I had people waiting two hours to get back home 
where they got a whole a house full of babies. Yeah. They still got to get ready for the next day. It's now 8:39 at night. Right. And we want we expect them to stay motivated to want to come back next week. Yeah. Right. So then when I go to the people who are in charge of that, mm-hmm. there's a huge disconnect because they can't understand what I'm saying. Right. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, so how do you help those people get a shift in the way they look at life so that we can help the people that we all say we want to help? I think part of it is, um, you know, a lot of the, the, a lot of the inequities, a lot of the vitriol that we've seen in society, a lot of the disconnect that we see in understanding one another is because we're not in relationship with each other. I'm just being straight. So one of the things that I often talk about and people kind of pause and say, what? Human beings are actually hardwired for fairness. Our brains, the brain scientists have been able to prove that our brains are actually hardwired to favor conditions that are fair. And they've actually been able to do studies with babies who are pre-verbal and show them conditions that are fair and their brains light up. And when you show them conditions that are unfair, those parts of their brains go dark. Right. So this gives me hope. But the reason they say that our brains are hardwired for fairness is because early humans lived in a high state of interdependence. So let's say the three of us lived in a small group. Right. Barbara, you were the hunter. okay? And for whatever reason, I don't know, your cave was particularly cold. And because of that, you got sick and died. Well, then Robert and I might also perish because you didn't have the conditions that you needed in order to be safe and well. Make sense? And so I was concerned with the state of your cave because my survival depended upon your survival. What we've done is to create a society that is increasingly independent, where we are increasingly independent of one another. And I think that that part of our brain doesn't fire up the way that it should. So that we're not looking at one another and considering how does my health affect your health and how does your health affect my health? That being said, and this is going back to the original question that you asked, Robert, is how do you get those folks to understand that? It is that they have to be in genuine relationship with these populations and these communities that they are hoping to help change their health destiny, right? They can't change their health destiny for them, but they can create the conditions in which those populations and those people can change their own health destiny. But the only way that that happens is for them to be in genuine relationship. If it was me, they'd have been standing out there with them for the two hours waiting for the transportation to come back because they can begin to understand that's what they face when they are trying to navigate stuff all the time. You see, you, you get what I'm saying? I mean, this is mandatory. I'm this is mandatory for any coach I work with. They got to watch this interview. Yes. Because one, (laughs) I would say one of the, I mean, you nailed it because that's what was missing. So me and one of the nurses who were putting on the event, guess where we were? Out there with them. Exactly. Yeah. Even when they even when they were smoking and blowing the smoke on me, I was right right. there. That's right. That's right. No, that that makes absolute sense. Yes. We were. Oh, it was such an eye opener to Mm -hmm. for you know someone like I have my car. I can jump in my car whenever I want to, and it's easy for me to go to CVS or wherever I need to go. And we were sitting out there. And, you know, we were there waiting, you know, for them to get picked up. And even to get there, I think there was a struggle for them to actually get there. And then to get picked up was another, you know, couple hours. And you can just see the frustration that they were dealing with. The fact that, yes, like Robert said, they have babies at home. So they're stressed out about that. 
And then on top of that too, which was really interesting. And I think that mm -hmm. like myself and all other coaches need to be sensitive about is the fact that just food in general, the way we talk about food and certain foods, right. not everybody eats what I like to eat or what you like to eat, Natalie, or what you like to eat, Robert. Yeah. They're eating an, a totally and completely <laughs> different, you know, just set up of food and access to food. And there can't be judgment there on what they, what they eat and what they want to eat. And yeah. I see that quite, I see that so much with respect to just, I don't know, call it food judgment. Oh, absolutely. Whether you want to eat out at a fast food restaurant or not, or you're non-organic mm -hmm. or not, or whatever it may be, there's so much judgment in God forbid you drop that, you know, I had a, you know, egg McMuffin or something like that. Right. <laughs> right. It's a big deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that ties to this whole piece around sort of the socioeconomic status piece. And even when I had a conversation with my dad last week, because, you know, we've been trying, he's in Atlanta. We've been trying to get him the COVID vaccine. Um, and for context, my dad at 54, who had never been an athlete, became an athlete. Uh, and, you know, went from weighing like 242 down to on a, any given day, he's between 172 and 175. He was biking 40 to 60 miles a day. He does a 10K if he doesn't cycle, right? Um, and became this very, so like kind of an elite athlete. And he's 76 now, you know, with washboard abs and the whole nine. He's what? vegan. Um, you know, he eats vegan uh, and lives a very clean lifestyle and really does everything he can to stay out of a doctor's office because that's his nightmare, right? So he's doing everything that he can to be healthy. And in that, um, for him to make those food decisions as somebody who is 76 and on a fixed income is incredibly dif difficult, right? I mean, it is incredibly difficult for him, particularly in his community to eat vegan and to find affordable vegan options for him, mm -hmm. really, really difficult, right? And on top of that, last week when I'm talking to him, he's telling me that he's trying to get his COVID vaccine and he spoke to Walgreens and they told him he had to go to a drive-thru and Robert, he doesn't have a car and he doesn't drive. And he said, well, can I walk up to the drive-thru? And they said, no. And he said, can I ride my bike up to the drive-thru? And they said, no. So that, what the hell? Right? <laughs> Is it a point that you were supposed to be getting access to people just like him? He's a cancer survivor. He's 76 years old. You say you're trying to get the vaccine to him, but because he doesn't have a car or drive, he's not going to be able to get access. That's nuts. It's absurd. Right? But if he goes to the neighboring county, they have a different protocol. And what you will see, the difference is around socioeconomic status. And it's crystal clear. Right? Wow. And, and I think a lot of what you're sharing in this whole conversation is about that genuineness. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. when we did that study, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm working with a population where there's not a lot of normalcy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and, and I know you get this and, and Barbara gets it, but for those of you who are like watching and listening, what we mean by that is that one day everything is going well. And the next day they have an appointment to go to a doctor, the people I'm talking about, mm -hmm. but they wake up and there's a dead body on the porch. Mm -hmm. Um, the, a week later, they're going to, they plan to go to the nutrition talk, but their kid never came home last night. Like, so there's no, like, it's not, there's no consistency. And so to keep people like that in a program for mm -hmm. let's say 12 weeks mm -hmm. is, is, is challenging. Right. Well, because of the genuineness of Magali, who was working with me mm -hmm. and I definitely am there for the people and Barbara was there and we had another coach, Annie, 
we had 93% retention. Wow, that's fantastic. Because we were in the rain with them. Yep. You know what I mean? And as a former Marine, you know, if you're gonna lead people, then you better get in the trenches with them. Yeah. And that's that disconnect that you're not seeing. Those people who came up with that protocol for your dad, Yeah. they have a car, like Barbara said. Yep. You know, Barbara would just drive right by your dad. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm supposed to give Barbara a hard time on the show. That's part of my job. Uh, clearly, clearly. <laughs> yes. But, so when you look at the political mm -hmm. agenda right now, yeah. um, mm -hmm. it seems like the Biden administration, mm -hmm. uh, they appear to be open. Mm -hmm. Are you talking to them? Because I could see you being very helpful and mm -hmm. them actually being able to create traction to do a lot of the things that they're saying they would like to do. So there's a web of us, and I've had the opportunity to weigh in on certain things to help them to think about uh, what they can do differently quickly. So you all get it. Bureaucracy, the size of the machine, it takes time. Like if you're you know, steering a cruise ship and you turn the wheel hard right, it might take 40 or 50 minutes before you start to see that there's a shift on the horizon, right? It takes a lot of time to, to turn the cruise ship. So the key is to figure out what are the things that they can do with some immediacy that will help. So I think um, some of what has happened, quite frankly, has happened at the state level in terms of state decisions with regard to health. That's complicated, right? The federal government can set the bar at a certain place, but really state governments and county governments have a lot to do with what happens with regard to health to be really honest with you, right? So how all of this stuff, even with regard to COVID and even post COVID, people need to pay close attention to who the local people are that play a role in health. Because those are the ones that really determine your health destiny along with you, right? So how they do things like zoning, whether or not they close or open a healthcare facility, what the rules are around certain things with regard to public health. All of that stuff is very, very local. The federal government may make recommendations and they can set the bar, but the implementation of that stuff runs through the state and then comes through your county and city governments. So what I can say to people, be involved, be aware, stay connected and understand who the people are who will be making those decisions for you. And I think that that's part of what COVID has really highlighted for some folks. Mm -hmm. in places in the country that folks that they had voted for for other reasons may not be the best people with regard to making decisions with regard to their health, right? And so now people have to look at that and weigh that out moving forward. That makes total sense. I mean, it's 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 shocking um, what we're going to need to do to bring everything together. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, it, it's sad. Like I watched someone like Jack Lane, who I knew well. And I watch all these fitness and health pioneers come and, you know, and time goes on and eventually, you know, we all leave this earth. Mm -hmm. And I see that, you know, the obesity challenges and all these things continue to get worse, mm -hmm. even though, you know, we have more Whole Foods and we have more Trader Joe's and we have more fitness centers and we have more people, you know, saying get healthy. Right. But when you look at the data, mm -hmm. we're not getting healthier. It's getting mm -hmm. worse. Right. I mean, I have my thoughts, but, you know, from what you're seeing, right, even with COVID, with domestic violence increasing, yeah. uh, mental health becoming like a major concern, a lot of people falling prey to 
suicide and depression. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, there's the COVID-15, people are gaining weight. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we have the people who get COVID, they can't really get back to what they once were, mm -hmm. having you know, challenges with their breathing. Yeah. I mean, how do you stay optimistic? Because you're in the trenches of it, you're seeing it. Yeah. You're, you're hearing from the people begging and looking for help. And it's like, no one's picking up the phone. Right. It's interesting because um, I have been heartened on one hand because there have been these groups, for instance, that have popped up in different states and uh, throughout the country to help people to get access, whether it's to get access to testing or access to the vaccine. People have self-organized and said, okay, our local system or our state system is not doing it for us. So we've got to figure out how to organize them. I don't think they should have to do that. Let me be really honest with you about that because they pay taxes for government to do certain things. So if their county, their city or their state government isn't showing up the way they need it to, they've got to hold them accountable for that. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we need to make sure that people have what they need to survive this. Right. The other piece, though, that I find interesting is I am hearing people consider their health more than they have before. Yes. Folks are starting to make the connection between what they see happening with regard to COVID um, and connecting that uh, in a way to health maybe that they have not before. So it's opened the door for, I think, greater awareness and more opportunities for people to engage more meaningfully in their health, right? So I think that um, families are having conversation about health that they've never had before. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a family where my health was not private. Nobody's was. Like, <laughs> it just didn't work that way. So if you went to the doctor, everybody knew you went to the doctor and you knew what was talked about and what the outcome was. If you were put on a medication, everybody knew that you were on. <laughs> like it was just, and it was across generations. And it wasn't just in my immediate family. Like if my aunt went to the doctor, I knew about it. And this, I, this is not what I like, this is my whole life. I think that families are starting to have conversations about health in ways that are different because of COVID. I actually think that there is greater consideration um, and it's going up the generations in a way that I think is really helpful. So I'm hearing 20 something year olds, 30 something year olds, 40 something year olds saying, my parents and my grandparents need my advocacy, right? right. And because of that, they're engaging in conversations around health in ways that are different. So there's an opportunity, there's a little crack, there's a little bit of opening there that I think that we need to try to exploit to keep that open and open it up even more so that these conversations about health are taking place in families in new and different ways. You know, I don't know if you um, you had seen, but I, I, Robert, I posted this thing about cigar smoking. It's, it's kicked off as like a really big trendy kind of thing. And, you know, it's supposedly like sexy and, you know. I, I, did, I did see that post. Right? And I was like, she's gonna, there's gonna be some pushback on that one. <laughs> Can I tell you, this is the, I expected that. I got the exact opposite. I had four people reach out to me to say that after reading it, first they were kind of feeling some kind of way about it, but then that they would make decisions to cut back. And I was very surprised about that, right? Um, these conversations about things like that are most impactful when you're hearing them from people who are closest to you. It's not necessarily the stranger 
this person who's not connected to your life. But when people who are connected to you, whether that's your network of friends or that's your family, I think there are real opportunities to change people's way of viewing health and the way that they engage in their own health. So that's my hope coming out of this time of COVID that we can shift these conversations and make them more personal um, and support one another. Your health is not an individual journey. It never was and it never will be. I don't get a cold all on my own. I get a cold from somebody else, right? <laughs> like We are all interconnected in some way, shape or form. If we can remember that, I think we can create opportunities for people to be healthy. You're right. Well, we have about a 10 minutes and toward the end, we do like a little rapid fire where we're going to go back and forth and ask you some questions. Uh Oh, oh man, I had so many questions. Okay. But you know, and I know you do, Barbara, we have to do a part two. It's taking over. Yeah. <laughs> we have to do a part two because there's, there's so much to talk about because everything that we're talking about in this conversation really is impacting and something that everyone would benefit from hearing mm -hmm. like everybody. Yeah. Uh, the, the challenge is, you know, how do we get it out there? But like you said, you did that post. I would see some guys pushing back because they love their time by themselves, smoking their cigars. They yeah. look up to the Steve Harvey's of the world. They see him smoking a cigar. So that becomes like, I'm going to go have a cigar. Yeah. And my cousin, I actually I took that post and I shared it with my cousin because he's always posting on Facebook cigars. Yes. Uh, yes. Right. Because he's endorsing it. Yeah. He's saying, hey, be like me. Yep. And I shared that with him and not one response. He didn't text me, he didn't email me. <laughs> he just got quiet. Give it either. He just, he just got quiet. Just, you know, when they, when they know, he just, yeah. there was nothing he could say. Absolutely. So anyway, Barbara, you're up first. Oh, so, okay. This is not a quick question, but I, I had to ask because it's listed on one of the key things that you've been kind of working on is the, business impacts of COVID and maybe can you share what are the, I don't know, maybe the top lessons learned from businesses and the impact of COVID? Because it sounds like that was something that you've been working with intricately. Sure. Uh, so I, I would say that, you know, big lesson learned from as a CEO and is really this, a lack of imagination will be the downfall of your business. And so this idea that you have to imagine for every possible scenario is real playing out scenarios in advance of them happening, create opportunities for you to be able to react and respond. So whatever your business model is, what COVID I think should have taught all of us is that we have to be flexible and nimble, right? And in that, we have to maintain the integrity of our work, the quality of what we're doing, but we also have to make sure that we are supporting our team. So what people have been asked to transition during COVID has been taxing physically and mentally, right? And as people who are concerned with the health and well-being of our folks, we also have to make sure that we're taking those things to, into account. So those are some of the things for me from a business perspective uh, that I think that we've learned during this time. I'm very thankful that we were able to be nimble and flexible, um, not to be overly dependent on certain streams of revenue, uh, but also recognizing for our staff, our, our workforce, what are the things that we need to do to be supportive of them being successful in times like this? Nice. Nice. I mean, well said. Um, yes. When you were sharing that, I was all I could think about was all the artists that I've known over the years, singers, mm -hmm. you know, people who had one hit back in the day or a few hits. Yep. And so they're not popular now, 
but they were popular during a certain time. So they relied on constantly doing shows, concerts. Yeah. Yep. And they still have, you know, big mortgages. They got bills to pay. And no one would have said a year and a half ago. It's like I was talking, Chuck D actually brought this to my attention of public enemy. Chuck was like, he goes, Rob, would you have ever thought that they could have shut the whole country down? Football games over, basketball, NBA, go home. Yeah. Uh, no one's doing a concert. No mm -hmm. one would. I, I mean, I would have said there's no way that would ever happen. Right. And it happened. Yeah. So for you, and mm -hmm. you touched on it a little bit, what did you do? Because I know a lot of your mm -hmm. business, right? You get you know funds from companies that support the work that you're doing. Yeah. You're constantly networking with yeah. people. You're, you know, you're, you're in DC and around all of that. And a lot of it is, is, you know, meeting people, having a dinner and, you know, nurturing the relationship and then getting funded yeah. or opening up doors. Yeah. What have you done that you will continue to now do sure. uh, as a result of the major shutdown that many of us experience? Well, as you know, generally speaking, I'm on travel 50 to 80%, sometimes 85% of a month. That went from that to nothing, like, like this, right? Uh, and that applies also to a large degree for our staff. They normally were on the road a lot because we do the in-person training around equity, diversity, and inclusion because we know that more equitable businesses and, and government, et cetera, leads to better health outcomes, right? So that's the connection there. Well, that training was a big part of what we're known for and what we do. We had to figure out how to transition directly from in-person training into virtual training. So how do we facilitate these really just difficult conversation around you know, identity and inequities and, and so on and so forth to these virtual spaces? so that people still feel like they can engage, still feel like it's safe and that they can still learn. So we had to get up and running very quickly in doing it virtually and it went really well, thankfully. That's because I think I have very experienced facilitators and trainers, right? So for them to move into the virtual platform wasn't that hard, but the demand spiked, quite frankly, after George Floyd was killed for training around equity, diversity and inclusion. And the demand was so over the top, we couldn't even meet the virtual demand. So what we were able to do pretty quickly, and we've been talking about doing this for like five years, was to take our entire training and make it available online. And it was a labor of love. It was tough, um, but it is now fully like plug and play, self-directed. So if folks wanna go in and do foundations of equity, diversity, and inclusion, they can go and do that any hour of the day or night from anywhere in the world. That for us was a quantum leap, mm. right? Um, it, it was the thing we always wanted to do and said we don't have the capacity to do. Well, not being on a plane, you know, five days out of the week created capacity and a necessity that then our team responded to. So now the Foundations of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion course is available and people are going through it. Whole companies are taking their staff through it, which is cheaper right than having us to come out and to you know train in person hundreds of people so there's a value proposition for them but also for us that is great you know what every <laughs> like anyone who watches this show and we're making available all your links how they can reach out to you learn about your courses uh you know speak to you about being a speaker like small business large business 
I mean, I'm, I am like, I can't wait to tell people about what you're making available. Mm-hmm. Because I do believe that the training that you're doing, I mean, just because on my own, I, how I've grown from just conversations with you mm-hmm. um, would help so many of these companies. Yeah. Um, now I, ha- I have one question, one, at least one more question, if you don't mind, and I'll give it to Barbara. But the question is kind of like from a mm-hmm. distance. When I look at companies, um, I see like on their website, mm-hmm. there's a look and feel of the kind of people that that are important, I guess, a value. So they have those those shades and looks on, mm-hmm. on the site. Mm-hmm. When you see a company that is predominantly like the website says mm-hmm. that is only Caucasian. It lacks diversity. Right. Then when you go and you meet that company, is it all, does it always sync up to be what they put out there is now when you go behind the curtain, it really is lacking diversity when you meet them? Uh, Probably 95% of the time. Yes. Yeah. And so it's, um, it's interesting because I think there are a lot of companies that are well-intended with regard to diversity. And so what they will, do is to try to recruit and retain people who bring underrepresented identities into the company. So whether that's, you're talking about people of color, whether you're talking about um, folks who have different uh, ability status, right? Uh, whether you're talking about people who are LGBTQ plus, they will, they will do the work to try to recruit and often say, we tried to find people, but we didn't get them. Mm-hmm. Part of that is because their own networks don't reflect those people. And so when they're putting the opportunities out there, they don't reach beyond their existing networks. Mm. One of the earliest things that I tell folks to do is to make sure that you are doing an analysis of your network. And as senior leadership, if you are in the C-suite of a company that's committed to diversity and you go on your LinkedIn and you look at your first level connections and everybody is like you, you have a problem. (laughs) right like that that's a no-brainer you know because then when you post your stuff who do you think is going to see it the people who are just like you but you're saying you want to attract people who are not like you so that means you've got to do the work to put yourself in spaces where you at least have the opportunity to engage with people who are not like you and then potentially develop a relationship so that's that's certainly one piece of it The other is a lot of companies will say that they pursue diversity because it's the right thing to do. That's not enough. Mm -hmm. It's not. You have to value it. So then when we say that, one of the first things I say, well, then why why do you value diversity? And I get a deer in the headlights. Like people are just like, there's a right answer and I don't know what it is. She's asking me (laughs) they freak out. And so what I try to help people to understand is Diversity can become a box checking activity. We got 17% of them, 42% of those, 19% of them, six more percent than we did of those folks last year. <laughs> That's not doing it. That's yeah. not doing it. That is, it, it is, right? And then inclu- inclusion is the muscle of diversity. Okay, so inclusion is about how people feel about being there, right? Which is, is lovely, but it still doesn't mean that it's equitable because equity has to do with power. So when you look at the C-suite, who has the power to make the decision? Where, with whom does that lie, right? This case around diversity, and the, the easiest way I can explain it is this. The science tells us that teams that have diverse identities represented are smarter. They innovate more. So companies that are, are gender diverse are uh, outperform their competitors by 15%. 
And so think about that, right? Companies that are ethnically diverse outperform their competitors by 35%. And that's from a McKinsey report, right? So diversity actually gives you a return on investment. Mm. You will outperform your competitors by diversifying. And the reason is this. In my identities, I experience the world a certain way. And because of that, I develop certain networks, certain problem solving skills. I bring certain perspectives and experiences into a space that people who don't look like me and don't have those experiences, they're not gonna have those things. And so what that means is when we are coming together to work together, I can bring things to the table that they can't because right. my life experience has cultivated those things in me. And that applies for every single identity. Doesn't matter what identity it is. Everybody within the context of their identities brings unique value into a space. The more that we can mix that up is the smarter that we can be, the more that we can innovate, the faster that we can problem solve, the more profitable that we can be. What an opportunity that is, right? So that's not just about the right thing to do. There's a business case for this. So we, we need to figure out how to get people to understand that, that it's not just about checking the box and this percent and that percent to make yourself feel better, but rather about how truly engaging people from different life experiences can make you better at what you do. Hey, so when I get you some jobs, uh, I get a kickback or something? Cause <laughs> I'll cook for you. Okay. <laughs> I can cook. So I, I bet you, hey, you put a little Jamaican flavor I in there. Some Jamaican food for you. Sounds I good to me. You got that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Barbara. Okay, I have one and a half question because the second, the half one will be super fast for you to answer. But this first one, um, you talked about how with, with COVID, how it created this kind of this opening for people to start to see mm -hmm. things a little bit differently with respect to healthcare. From mm -hmm. your experience, do you see that as we kind of move through COVID, do you see like, I don't want to say necessarily emerging, but maybe mm -hmm. different healthcare or health issues that are coming out of this that you find are going to be pressing yeah. and come to the forefront of, I don't know, maybe local, national focus, you know, beyond COVID? Does that make sense? I think in terms of uh, the long haulers and what we're seeing with regard to the long-term impacts on their bodies, uh, very concerning. Because what they're finding is that over 50% of people who are asymptomatic, so if you think about that, these are the folks who never really got sick per se, their lung capacity and lung volume has decreased. And so we, in essence, um, have an undetected uh, pervasive issue with regard to breathing and lung capacity that I think is, is gonna be very concerning and will not reveal itself immediately. Okay. It's gonna happen over time. That decreased lung volume, lung capacity thing, I think is going to appear over time. The second piece are the neurological symptoms. And so I actually know people who are long haulers who are dealing with this, with severe headaches, um, numbness in their limbs, uh, so on and so forth, post-COVID, right? And so I don't think we're gonna uncover that stuff, to be really honest with you, for years, because COVID is not going away. COVID is going to be an ongoing presence for us, similar to influenza, but much, much worse, because it's way more contagious, right? And it is, of course, 
way deadlier than than flu absolutely is, right? So there's really it's you can't really compare it in that way. So we're going to have to adjust to this idea of getting vaccinated. Um, they still don't know how often. So that that's going to be a piece of it as well for us to really understand uh, along the way. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And so, oh, the half one, you said this great <laughs> statement early on, and I definitely want to remember this. And I think everybody listening wants to hear this one again. It had to do with what you value is what you, how you act yes. versus how, how did that go again? It was really good. Yeah. So what we value is not about how we feel. It's about what we choose to do. That's it. Right. So every single day we each get to exercise our personal power through our decisions, our behaviors, and our actions. How I feel in my mind is for me. How I show up in the world is about those decisions, those behaviors, and those actions. And to me, um, we are very quick to judge ourselves by our intentions, but to judge everybody else by their impact. Mm. It's time for us to flip the script. And to some degree, to extend grace to people, at times based on their intentions, understanding their impact maybe didn't align with their intentions. Because I, be I believe in extending grace to people, right? Especially when they ask for it. You know, I think that that's an important part of what's been missing in our society over the past several years. But also I think, you know, as somebody who works on public health, I can't feel good about my intentions unless my impact aligns or exceeds my intentions in the best possible ways. So if you have been working your heart out on something and the needle hasn't moved, your intentions matter, but your impact actually matters more. That's where we need to measure. That's where we need to focus. That's where we need to point our action and what we choose to do. Okay. So let's look at a, a, the average person that we work with. Barbara and I work with people as far as losing weight, living their healthiest life. Mm -hmm. Their intent is to lose that weight. <laughs> mm -hmm. But they ain't doing much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're supposed to give them all the magic answers. Wave your wand. Wave your wand. If you wave your wand, I mean, action is, is doing the other, the opposite, right? Well, it's yeah. like you, you know, you say, okay, so this week I want you to walk three times. And they go, got it, Robert. I said, okay. So then the week goes by and we get on the phone. I said, hey, so how did it go? You get those walks in? Well, you know, hey, didn't get it in. So is it that they're not valuing how that would contribute to the impact of getting the outcomes they want? Mm, it, you know what? It's interesting. It could be that, but I think more often it is that they are valuing something else more. Something else has drawn their atten attention, their energy, and their focus. And to some degree, and particularly during COVID, I know people are tapped out in a lot of different ways, mentally and emotionally, right? Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, food for many people is medicine, but not in the ways that we would want it to be. Right? right? <laughs> you know what I mean, right? And there are people who are absolutely over-medicating. So their relationship with food is offsetting some of the other stressors and trauma that are in their life. They have to figure out how to redirect that. I know some people who've been able to redirect that into exercise which is fantastic, right? And that's where they've made a profound shift in their lives. So when people don't do what it is that's necessary to 
to lose that weight or to make that lifestyle change, I think the question that I ask is where are they actually placing the value? It's on something else. Right. You know, in psychology, we call that competing intentions. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. There's, there's, mm -hmm. com they're competing with each other. And sometimes Absolutely. the one that you said earlier in your words and in your head that you wanted to win yeah. doesn't win because you also value the taste of that extra ice cream scoop. <laughs> yeah, and how it makes you feel. Right? And how it makes you feel that, that ice cream gives you a feeling. You know, and you're trying to capture that feeling in that moment. So I think I do think that that's definitely a piece of it. Because I, I promise you, I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist or anything, but with as much of this stuff as I have read and learned over the years, uh, I know I should be doing way better myself, right? <laughs> and so it's a, it's a constant, you know, I'll have a few good months and then I'll have a few not so good months. And then, you know, I, I get back on the wagon again. And I do think that that's part of it is this idea of me getting back on the wagon. I think the same thing applies to people with their health. You know, when I have folks who say I haven't gone in for a checkup in four years, I try not to like Barbara, as you were saying, I don't beat up on them. What's it going to take for you to get to the doctor this year? You didn't get your mammogram. You didn't get it last year or the year before. That's OK. What's it going to take for us to get your mammogram this year? Nice. What do you need to move? And the other piece is we spend a lot of time in a deficit mindset that when people don't do something, we say it's because they don't have something that they need when in fact, the question or the thing on which we should be focused is what's in the way. Sometimes people have everything that they need, but there's something in the way. So how do we do the work to move those things out of the way so that they can then move forward? And I think that's a good way for us to maybe refocus our energy as well. Amen. Because there's a lot of women that should get a divorce tonight. <laughs> get him out of here. You get rid of him and you'll be in the best shape of your life. <laughs> I can believe that. I absolutely can believe that. Well, hey, it's it's been an honor, Natalie. Seriously, I am so thankful that you have made time to come on. And I apologize that we went over. No worries. I, I do value your time. And I was very excited. I woke up excited about having this conversation because it took me back. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember me, you, and I think it was someone that worked for you or mm -hmm. someone was at one of those events. I think we were sitting outside in Florida and we were talking about social media. It was mm -hmm. picking up a lot of momentum. And this is what she said, Barbara. She goes, hey, you ain't going to catch me with no Twitter. You ain't going <laughs> to see me on oh, Facebook. <laughs> She's not lying. <laughs> and and I, was, I remember when you took those baby steps. I go, there she is. She's on Twitter. Uh, All right. Oh, oh, my. She's on Facebook. <laughs> I crossed over to the dark side like three years ago. Three but years it's ago. so good because, and I remember telling you, I go, you have so much to say. You, I mean, you, you bring so much to the, to the party and I'm just so happy. Whatever happened to get you to like, come over to this side of things. Um, I, I just value it. I think it's great that you're, you're, that you're sharing and that you're making yourself available to get the word out about what could be uh, instead of just watching from a distance silently. Thank you. I appreciate that. It is. Um, it has been a work in progress, and I've been learning along the way, and learning from folks like you. Uh, certainly, for what you've done to have, you know, a presence and visibility and so on. And so, every single day, I am learning more about it, and hopefully, I will get better at it as time goes on. Because I do recognize that getting the information out there is critical for people to be able to make great choices. That's right. There's people who aren't going to smoke a cigar again because of you. 
Oh, yeah. there might be another post coming about that sometime. <laughs> I'll, be your, uh, I'll be your next social media friend. Oh, right. I'll find you. But you Please are do. Yes, you are an absolute light. I mean, just absolutely just this. Thank you. I appreciate light. it. Yes, Thanks, it's a Barbara. pleasure. All right, you guys. So for those who listen in, who caught the show, reach out to Natalie. Uh, introduce your company to Natalie. She she has so much to offer. And so uh, we always tell people when we end our show, Natalie, that we want them to get healthy, be healthy. And then Barbara brings it home. Boom, stay healthy. You got it, baby. All Thank right. you. Thanks. Appreciate you all. <laughs> <laughs>